Hey everyone, as the latest installment of Scream lands in theaters, revisit the masterful scores from the horror franchise's first four films with the Scream Original Motion Picture Soundtrack box set. Available on four LPs or six CDs, each collection is housed in a unique jacket which folds out into a ghost face mask. It's really cool. And speaking of the new film, uh, the brand new score can also be ordered today on vinyl in a reflective mirrorboard jacket or on CD or digital formats. Yes, you too can own the musical legacy of Scream. Visit your favorite retailer or shop the label store directly at VerezSaraband.com. That's V-A-R-E-S-E-S-A-R-A-B-A-N-D-E.com. Where KingCast listeners can save 20% off for a limited time with the code SCREAM20 at checkout. Now we must appease our Fangoria overlords by once again reminding you about their kick-ass magazine. Every issue of Fangoria explores every nook and cranny of the genre filmmaking past, present, and future with all of the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way. Sometimes even your intrepid KingCast hosts will contribute from time to time. Yeah. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, you'll need to subscribe. To do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. And since KingCast listeners are in the family, you can enter in the promo code KingCast at checkout to save a whopping 25% off your entire order. Now, with all of that said, on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. Hello and welcome back to the King Cast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. This week's guest is one we are very excited to finally have on the show. You may be familiar with her from her directorial work on series like Creepshow, The Haunting of Blind Manor. She was the writer-director of last year's The Manor, as well as American Horror Story Double Feature. But today she's here to have a long overdue conversation with us about needful things. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Ms. Axel Carolyn. Axel, Hi, how are you doing today? Good. How you doing? I'm glad to finally be here. We've been trying to arrange for this episode <laughs> to happen for some time. And, uh, you know, there were scheduling conflicts and one thing after another kept coming up. So we are we are very hyped to finally have you on. You had a hell of a year last year in 2021, didn't you? It's been good. Yeah, it's been fun. I got to do a lot of cool horror stuff. So very great. Right. For those in the audience who haven't seen the manor which was an amazon original movie that you directed with barbara hershey uh what what can you tell us about it so it's a movie i made with blumhouse and amazon it's about a woman who moves into a nursing home and starts to think that everybody there has dementia because everyone seems to be seeing weird things at night and then she starts seeing those weird things at night and guess what there is weird things going on in that nursing home at night <laughs> it's kind of based on experiences i've had seeing family members going to nursing homes and, and talking about seeing things and then how we dismiss it very easily. But it's, um, it's a very dark subject matter, but it's a, it's a horror movie. It's silly. It's supernatural and kind of, you know, kind of fun. Right on. To work with Barbara Hershey, who was phenomenal. Right. Yeah. She's, she's kind of a, a horror legend with the, the entity, you know, that's a, that's a film I only just saw a couple of years ago and was surprised by. <laughs> um, I was 
that was not what I thought that movie was going to be about. <laughs> and um, she was in writing the bullet, so she has the Stephen King connection as well. That's oh, right. That's right. You know, although I don't know that I've actually, don't tell Mick Garris I said this, but I don't think I've actually <laughs> seen writing the bullet yet. Well, you know what you're watching tonight then. Yeah. <laughs> I got that all sorted out. And, and tell us about your, tell us about working on creep show. I feel like, I feel like that series has gotten better and better as it's gone along. And this latest season was just excellent. It's very much the baby of Greg Nicotero. You know, he seems incredibly passionate about it. And, and what I loved was that I'm a massive horror geek. Like horror is very much my life. And, uh, and when you walk into that office, straight away you see that you're amongst like-minded people. Like Greg's office, he was on Walking Dead at the same time as he was shooting Creepshow and he was showrunning Creepshow. And so he has two different offices. And his office in Creepshow is the smaller one, but it's also full of monsters. And he keeps all this stuff because he wants to be just like I am. He wants to be surrounded with monsters and with cool posters and things all the time. And and so it's that's the language he speaks when you discuss effects or when you discuss ideas for the shoot. You come up with references. He'll get excited. At some point, I wanted to do something that had a reference to the old Hammer Dracula. And you could see his eyes light up like, yeah, I love that shit. And um, yeah, it was, <laughs> that enthusiasm yeah. is really, really what keeps the whole show. Like it's the glue of the show and it's what makes it so much fun. Mm. Yeah, Nicotero is the best. I, I've, I've known Greg for a long, 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 long time. Like I think I first met him in 2000 or 2001 and we bonded over uh, being huge fans of Jaws like uh top one percent fans of jaws you know the uh, obsessive uh borderline obsessive fans um and uh but it, you're right it's it's so funny you go to like k and b or you go to any you know at least his la office you know he's got like day of the triffids three sheet up on his wall and he goes hey check out this gun in the corner like recognize it it's it's uh ken Faree's gun from from uh dawn of the dead you know it's like he just surrounds himself with all this this stuff, not just stuff he worked on. Like you, you can always tell the people in the industry that are really into movies whenever like you go visit their office or, you know, shop or whatever. And they're right. It's not, they're not just surrounded by the stuff they've made. It's, it's all this other stuff. It's like going into Lee Unkrich's office at, at Pixar and he's got, you know, the original screen used acts from the shining, you know, that he, mm-hmm. he's made, he, he's bought with all of his Pixar fortunes, you know? Yeah, and it's the excitement in your voice when 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 you mention something, and then you you can see their face change and be like, "Oh, I love that movie! Oh my God, you've seen that too? That's awesome!" And yeah, that's the kind of that's that's my people. You also worked on, uh, as we mentioned in the intro, uh, House of I gotta say House on Bly Manor, um, <laughs> like a little house on top of the uh, bigger house. Um, but yeah, you worked on House of uh, I almost did it Uncle. again, House of Bly Manor. Bly <laughs> Manor. Which which sort of makes you part of uh, Mike Flanagan's extended family. Many many members of which have appeared on this show. Oh, so true. you're yeah, sort of you're you're joining that club today. And then I've also um, yeah, I'm, that's a pretty good club too. I've, I've heard Rahul and Kate and, and Mike on the show repeatedly. So yay, I get to be part of that. Um, yeah, I did I did fly, and then I came back this summer. I went to do two episodes on the Midnight Club which is the one mm. that we've got coming out in the spring. Yeah, I yeah, can't wait to see that. Yeah, really excited to see that one. Everything that happens under their banner seems to be awesome. Right. So any new project is is always one we're going to check out. Well, they're not only genre fans as well and incredibly talented, they're also really, really good people. 
mm. really supportive and very like if I can work with Mike and his team as long as possible, I'd be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> you got to grab onto those those like minded people, the Nicoteros and the Flanagans and and whatnot when you find them. Yeah, yeah, and the people who support you, anybody who's kind of we want to support your vision. We want to work with you. We want to, it doesn't happen. You know, I've been in this industry for a long time and I've been trying to make movies for a very long time. And those chances are few and far between. So when it happens and it turns out to be good experiences, you got to hang on to that. Right. Oh, totally. I'm incredibly grateful to Mike. I really am. Good dude. I suppose we should talk about your Stephen King origin story. This is a question we ask all of our guests and Basically, what we're asking is, when did first uh, when did Stephen King first come onto your radar as you know a pop culture presence? Were you a were you a reader or did you come to the movies first? I was a reader, so I I grew up in Belgium. I had a very strict dad who was uh, he was a, a college professor and he was very much about like reading was fine. You could read whatever you wanted. But TV was highly regulated at my house. I could watch one thing a week. And if I watched a documentary with my mom on the Tuesday, I couldn't watch a movie on the Saturday because I had my two hours of TV. So I didn't get to watch a lot of movies when I was little, unless I would sneak to my grandma and go watch something there because she was was like, Bruce Lee was on TV last night. I taped that for you. No. Um, if my dad had known, I don't think I would have gone to my grandma's quite as often as I got to. Um, but yeah, so so I couldn't. I was kind of slightly obsessed with the images of horror that I would see, and, and anything from Disney or that had skeletons or ghosts. So like, yes, this is great. This is what I. So I really wanted to watch horror, but since I wasn't allowed to, I discovered my dad's bookshelf of um, horror books from when he was a kid and he had all the classics like all I started out with Dracula and with ghost stories and with like things like that like Frankenstein and then I can't remember how I heard about Stephen King but I guess it was because the movies were coming out but then I thought if I can sneak into a bookstore without my parents noticing that I'm buying a book that they haven't approved I can probably buy this and it turns out they didn't mind what I was reading because it's like it's a book it's fine you can do whatever hmm. and so the first book that I bought was The Running Man strangely enough because it had Schwarzenegger on the cover and I <laughs> right. made it identifiable <laughs> so I was like yes this is gonna be great and I guess I liked it enough that I went back and I bought Misery and then Misery because the cover for Misery was beautiful it was this little kind of black uh, blue and black picture of a house in the snow and it looked beautiful like the covers in france and in belgium are completely different from yeah what we have here and um so i would go by the cover and misery was great and then i discovered pet cemetery and that was that was when i was really hooked and I'm how old were you when you probably like 10 it's interesting that they would let you read horror but not watch a lot of tv don't know if they really knew what they were allowing me to, to read <laughs> Uh, because Pet Cemetery fucked me up for so many reasons. Obviously, that book when you're ten is so scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but one of the things that I remember the most was reading the sex scene and having that first look into like grown ups do what? <laughs> <laughs> is that how you found out about sex? Was through Pet Cemetery? <laughs> I would like to hope that I had some notions before that, but but like you know the the, the weirdness of that sex scene is so bizarre. By the way, with like the, the sponge in the bath and the, it, I still remember it because I was like, this is they do what? This is wacky. <laughs> <laughs> but That's it's how it works. My first outlook into what a grown up mind 
how a grown-up mind works and what it's like to be a grown-up and having those responsibilities and having to look after kids. And and obviously I was seeing it very much from a point of view that was closer to the kids, to like Ellie in the book. But yeah, it's it's a very powerful book at whatever age you read it. But definitely at that age, it was like, yes, I'm going to be a Stephen King girl for life. And how about the movies? When did you When did you come to those? Little by little. Because every once in a while, my dad would make an exception and decide for some reason that something on TV was good for me. So one of the first ones that I saw was Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> he made an exception for Maximum Overdrive? <laughs> he did, yeah. He was like, it's on TV. It's killer trucks. How the hell is that going to be scary? So um, I loved it. And I still love it. It's still one of my favorites. Yeah, me too. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big Maximum Overdrive stan over here. I think it's... Uh, and it's only something that I've liked more as I've grown older and watched it more because like, I really loved it as a kid, you know, because, you know, as a kid, you don't really care, you know, don't really have any sort of, I don't know, barometer for quality. Right. But then like you get that, that age when everybody says, oh yeah, that movie's shitty. It's, it's a, it's a shitty movie. I love to watch. It's a guilty pleasure thing. And then you, then I'm sitting around going, but I actually genuinely like it and think it was getting, achieving everything it was trying to do. But I felt like kind of shitty for, for liking it. You know, when other people were so clearly, you know, calling it a bad movie. And then like in the, in the more time that passed, it's just like you just have to respect how bonkers that movie is and how little fucks it gives. And uh, uh, and yes, it's it's kind of theatrical and broad, but it's it's also very effective. And, and it's hard to hate that movie because I think I've described it on the show before is, is something that it's just this big, goofy, like dog almost is like a big, dumb lab that just <laughs> wants you to love it. Yeah. You know, when you watch it, your face, yeah, it, all it does is want you to have fun. That whole movie, you the big ACDC score, everything. There's just something about Maximum Overdrive that, like, I, I've gone past that whole, oh, you know, yes, I like it as a guilty pleasure, or, or I like it more than a guilty pleasure to like, no, fuck you, it's not a guilty pleasure, it's it's legitimately good because it's trying to do it, it's succeeding at what it's trying to do. It's so, and it's, it's, I mean, it's any movie that starts with an ATM calling Stephen King an asshole and then moves <laughs> on to killing kids on the baseball field with like uh, drink cans. It's, 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 it's bonkers. It's <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't seem to have any sense of, oh, this is something we're not supposed to do. It doesn't censor itself at all. It's, it's going to kill those kids. It's, it's going to no. kill them. You know, I, it's really fun. It's just, I don't understand the hatred for that. And I'm convinced there's going to be some kind of, Halloween three season of the witch reversal on it. I, th- I think we're close to that. I, I, at least I've, since we've started the podcast, I've noticed there being a little bit more of a, at least a film Twitter. I don't know about the general world, but like a film Twitter, Twitter, more uh, uh, appreciation for, as for the fun of that movie. Keep talking about it. Let's, let's do the, you know, God's work here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, 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 we were told by one of our listeners who would be in a position to know such a thing a while back that HBO Max was developing a, a Maximum Overdrive series. I don't know if it's a limited series or intended to be an ongoing thing. Don't even know if it's true. This is just what somebody told us, and I believe the story that I was told. If we, do you have interest in directing on Maximum Overdrive if it became a series? Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you need yeah. to get your dad in there as a cameo, though. <laughs> <laughs> what, was your re- what was your reaction to that one when you were a kid? Were you immediately on board with it? I think so, and I think the... The funny thing is that one of the other, he, 
taste, man, this is wacky. But I think it was mostly chance. It was mostly like, oh, this is on TV and it doesn't look too bad and I'm going to watch it, so why not? But another movie around the same time, I think, that I got to see was Army of Darkness. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some ways it has a tone that's not that far from it because it's both are kind of horror comedy with the comedy is a bit more obvious in one than in the other. But in both I was confused because I was like, this is kind of scary, but it's also really goofy. So is this... Are all horror movies kind of goofy? Or I, I remember confusion mostly, fascination and confusion. Well, you're you're not wrong there. I mean, I think that's very astute actually, because there's there's horror comedy. There's like American Werewolf in London, you know, top tier horror comedy. Um, but then there's like Raimi's brand of horror comedy is more slapstick. It's more Three Stooges. Then you that's when you get into Evil Dead Two or army of darkness is like way more like slapstick than it is horror. It's like 80% slapstick comedy and 20% horror and evil dead two is like half and half. And the first evil dead's predominantly uh, scary, but, uh, but yeah, it's weird. Like that isn't a, a flavor like that exists much outside of Raimi, you know, that kind of slapstick, super goofy horror. horror comedy is not usually that extreme on the comedy. And if it's the first things that you're introduced to, and it's the first time that you, get to watch horror movies i'd seen a couple that i i kind of but i can't even remember what i, I know i saw a nightmare on elm street pretty early but mm. i only have faint memories of it but but if it's the first few that you watch that you're conscious of watching it is it is confusing it's it's weird it's kind of right. are they not completely don't they take themselves seriously am i supposed to is the filmmaker not aware that this is goofy <laughs> which is you know still the reaction most people have when they watch maximum overdrive to be honest totally Confusion and fascination so when we first started talking about you doing this show um you arrived at needful things pretty quickly as the title you wanted uh-huh. to do uh-huh. and so i'm curious why why this particular title and you know w- before we go digging into it uh, more deeply, like what what your general take on needful things is. Well, I think that you've had like five people come in and talk about needful things since we discussed. Nope, you're only the second. And really? the last time we did oh, it, I drank a bottle of champagne on air, and that is uh, not a very good needful things episode. <laughs> it's a good episode if you want to hear me drinking champagne and talking about Robin Williams' feet, but <laughs> but not 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 a not not the um in-depth discussion on on needful things that i think it deserves so you're good oh, it's, not, it's not it's it's just i had the feeling that this was a fairly unloved title and that's why i mm. wanted to mention it but actually i got the feeling listening to the show a lot of people mention needful things as something they like so maybe my impression was wrong but i i feel like the book is um i really like the book but i also love the movie and I've always seen really bad reviews of the movie and maybe this is just back to my terrible taste and my terrible kind of maximal overdrive obsession, but I kind of love it. I watched it again last night. I think it totally holds up. I think it has a really unique tone and very strange. I mean, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a very valid Stephen King entry. And so I thought it deserved a little bit of, deserved a little bit of love. Hmm. Right on. I'm definitely on board with that. I I love this book. I'm pretty, pretty wishy-washy on the movie. Uh, it does some stuff that I love, and then it does a lot of stuff where I'm like, mm, not so much. Right. But uh, but I do love the book. It's it's one of my favorites, and I agree that it's kind of undersung in the overall King canon. 
Right. But I think we have a very different view on it, though, which I'm very excited to discuss with you. Ooh. Because you see it more as a, as a kind of broader comedy than I do, I think. Yeah, I, I absolutely look at it as a, as a dark comedy. And that was, you know, that was King's defense of mm -hmm. it when it came out. It got, it got savaged by critics. If you go, if you like look up reviews of Needful Things when the book came out, they are fucking brutal. People were so mad about that book. And he was like, well, I was trying to write a satire here, you know, and I think everyone's taking it too seriously. But uh, that was still like the point in his career where I don't think literary critics were, you know, on board with what he was doing. It, it, right. it, it was a few years in the future that, you know, a new generation of critics started coming in and you know, I think it's the that, Shawshank line that, that I've, I've insisted on yeah, before, like yeah. we're, we're, this is under the Shawshank line where, where he, suddenly people were like, okay, well, if he wrote this thing or this movie that was based on <laughs> his short story or whatever, it's uh, if he wrote that, then maybe we've misunder uh, understood his movies or underestimated him before mm -hmm. his, uh, his work. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think that's right. I, my memory of it is that everybody that I know, which wasn't a lot of people, because I was, I must have been 10 or 11 when the book came out. And I think I was 12 or 13 when I read it. It was still like at used bookstores, like where you could find new copies or whatever when I bought it. Um, but, uh, you know, at that age, there's not a whole lot of other kids in middle school, you know, mm -hmm. lugging around giant, you know, 700 page Stephen King books. Um, but uh, the people that I do did know that uh, had read it or did meet and talk to, they all seemed to like it. So it, it was actually a surprise to me whenever we, you know, you brought that up, Scott, that, uh, that the critic establishment just hated it. Cause I, I can't imagine that I, I can understand why maybe his mid nineties output would turn people off. Like uh, the Gerald's game and bag of bones and, you know, kind of getting it in the post accident era where, you know, he's just kind of getting his feet again, you know, as a writer, like I can, I can understand the criticisms, even if I don't agree with them there, but I don't even understand how you can read needful things and go, you know, this is God awful trash. I want, I'm sorry. I'm bringing it back to maximum overdrive. I guess I have a tendency, <laughs> but I, I wonder if it's not exactly what we were just discussing about that. The fact that it's the first time he did something that had that satire side of him and that sense of humor of his that now we're so familiar with because we see him on Twitter and we see him in interviews and, mm. and he is very funny and we know that. <laughs> he's a big fan of dad jokes and, you know, he, he has <laughs> yeah, he a Stephen King sense of humor. I don't think was as obvious in the early 90s and, and Maximum Overdrive had some of that and I think that was um, probably... I think people thought that it was a very serious movie and then took it as face, at face value and didn't connect with it. And then maybe the same thing would happen with Neutral Things where they didn't realize that mm. there is a humor behind it, that there is kind of a, a, a very, very dark criticism of the human race that they, didn't, they weren't familiar with when it comes to mm. work. Totally. One of the chief complaints that I, I noticed in a few of the reviews that I, that I read of the book was that it, that it was grotesquely violent like horrifically violent and way too over the top. And man, I've never really gotten it from that. I don't think it's any more violent than any other particularly violent Stephen King novel. I kind of get on board with that though. Really? I, yeah. Yeah. To me. And that's where I feel like my, my perception of it is different from yours. 
I find it so fucking dark. It's mo- it's book and a movie that I find fairly depressing in some ways. I reread it in 2020, at the end of 2020, and probably the context made it even worse because the world <laughs> was a dumpster fire. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it feels like that, that subtext of like, we're just two steps away from savagery. We actually don't like our neighbors. We actually don't want to be friends with them. We're triggered by the smallest things. Um, and the way that it can escalate so quickly, all of that I felt was so, it cuts so close to the bone. And it's so, um, so close to human nature. Like it very much is like, you know, we, we like to see people as just being well-meaning or, you know, we have one half of the world that sees the world as like, everybody needs to embrace everything and embrace the differences. And, and the other side of the world that's like, no, we're all at war, man. We all hate each other. <laughs> and we're kind of somewhere in the middle. And, and, and this book kind of <laughs> acknowledges that. And, and I don't know the way that it describes how close we are to just, destroying each other all the time is, is, is a little bit spooky to me. Mm. Also, I, I suffer from misophonia. I used to have it stronger when I was a teenager, um, but I still kind of have it to this day. And I, do you guys know what it is? Nope. Like it's a condition that makes you have a fight or flight reaction to certain noises. And it's mm. mostly noises linked to people. Like if you hear someone breathe really loud, it triggers me. If you hear someone eat really loud, or if there's someone like chewing popcorn next to you with mm. their mouth open, like it triggers you to a point where some people end up lashing out or just like leaving because they can't take the situation anymore. And um, and I'm and I'm thinking that's the kind of stuff like if if you're if you have very strong misophonia, you hate the very fact that you can hear someone exist, which is bizarre. And <laughs> and I, I remember reading something when I was a teenager and I, I don't know if it's true, but I read it in the newspaper that someone on a bus kept listening to this guy who was chewing gum and eventually grabbed the knife that they had in their bag and, and started trying to cut off the guy's head on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> and whether it's true or not, it somehow resonated with me. Like, yes, sometimes some people are sold out. <laughs> we should cut off some heads. And um, yeah, it's, it's that idea of like, there's tiny little things about people that can make you, so angry about them that you can lash out in ways that are not responsible. What are your top three like triggers with this, with this condition? Uh, like what's the, what's the worst one. thing you can hear? Uh, chewing noises. Mm. Yeah. Just chewing smacking. noises are pretty gross. Yeah. Yeah. I'm much, much better with it because I, I don't know with time it got better, but as a teenager, it was, it was really hard. <laughs> has it been, has it been hard to live with other people as a result of that? Uh, it's mostly hard to go to a theater. It's hard to be in a crowd, which obviously I haven't done in quite some time now. So <laughs> the world is turning into a more friendly place for misophonia people, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, theaters were hard. I had to always be kind of on the side where I could take a breath or feel like I'm not surrounded with people everywhere. It's, it's kind of that awareness of hearing people exist around. It's very hard to explain, but it's... it's um, this is one of the things that it reminded me of. And it's funny that it's not exploited more in horror because apparently it's very common. Everybody has <laughs> some degree of misophonia. I mean, no one likes to listen to someone chew gum, I guess. I can imagine this being the case. I have a problem with like, like I don't have a problem with concerts or if I go to the movies and the sounds cranked up really loud or like volume in or in like a, a, a rowdy bar 
or something like that. But I've always been very hard to live with because incidental noises in the house drive me fucking crazy. Hmm. You know, like someone putting away, say, some pots and pans too loudly Mm -hmm. or, you know, stacking plates or like slamming a microwave door or something. Right. You know, that that really sets me off. And it's it's something that over time I've just been like. You just got to live with that, dude. But (laughs) we we go to we go to my wife's uh, her folks's place for the holidays sometimes. And I grew up, you know, as an only child in a relatively quiet household and their house is they there's like, you know, is my wife, her brother, her sister. The brother has a wife and several kids. And then there's the, the mom and the dad. And then often there's like people stopping by in the house that they know from church or whatever. And it's like it, to me, it's, it seems insane, (laughs) you know, that you would have like 10 people in your house not for any real particular reason. They're just kind of hanging out. Like, like I love throwing a party, but I'm also completely weirded out by those sorts of scenarios. And, and invariably, I end up like running and hiding in whatever guest room we're sleeping in that time just to quiet the din of the noise mm. for a second because yeah. it's everyone talking over one another. And it's I can very easily imagine, you know, dealing with this condition. Maybe I have like a low level form of it. Well, I, I grew up with three siblings. So that idea of having noise everywhere and, you know, six people under the same roof and having to fight for conversation space at the table and, and all that, that I, I, maybe that's part of where that came from. I don't know, but yeah, same thing. It's, it's, I find it hard to deal with that kind of noise. I forget what, how we got here. Um, <laughs> what brought us to being this? set up against each other easily. Like oh, yes. Yes, yes. Little, little things can set every yes. set people off. Yeah. Yes. And how everybody, I think, I, I think on the previous episode where you discussed this, you were asking what object people would want. Mm. Yes. I think what would be really, I haven't thought of this at all, but actually what would be interesting too is like, what would set you off? Like, is there that person in your life? Can everybody think of at least one person in their life where like, yeah, that fucker. You know, <laughs> where the, the smallest thing would be Google, my neighbor. I'm oh, always. I'm of that person. Even like Mother Teresa probably has some some angle that Leland Gaunt could, you know, could uh, uh, exploit, uh-huh. you know. And, and that's kind of the genius of, of the story. And uh, I guess for, for people who haven't uh, uh, read the book or seen the movie, one, I have no idea how you've gotten this far into a podcast about it and haven't done either one of those. But just in case you haven't, it's all about a small main town, Castle Rock, the fictional uh, town that uh, Stephen King invented, that uh, uh, has a new guest come in who's an antiques dealer by the name of Leland Gaunt, who, surprise, surprise, is pretty much just the devil that's tempting everybody with an item uh, he has a, a needful thing in his shop for everybody. And th- that needful thing... Uh, is something that people covet and want and it just means it's the most perfect thing you could ever want and if you walk into any store and see it you have to have it in almost all cases it's not real and uh, you know it's it's some sort of uh, glamour or something that kind of puts these people under spells but he uses that as a uh, as a way to turn the town against each other. So by the end, you know, everything's on fire and and uh, the the community's torn itself apart because, you know, he's exploiting these people. He's exploiting their hatreds and their desires, which is really interesting. So he's using their desire to get this item and to quote unquote pay for this item. 
by doing little minuscule minor negative things, you know, slash a tire, you know, uh, uh, throw rocks through a window, you know, dirty, you know, throw mud at somebody's hanging laundry, that kind of thing. Little things that shouldn't ultimately be a big deal, but like the whole thing just escalates to the point where all these little sins add up and right. just destroy an entire town. And yet there's just something incredibly perfect about how he sets up this very long book with this huge cast of characters and and makes it relatable to everybody even if you didn't grow up in a small town and grew up in a big city like you're still going to relate to this because everybody has those things that set them off the little little thing that might not be a big deal to 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 one person but you know or nails on a chalkboard to another you know and and uh, gaunt knows this and he just sits back and lets the town uh, you know, he, he essentially, it's like a domino falling, which I love. He like presses a little domino and it, it has a cascading effect and hits all the other dominoes that ultimately collapses the entire thing. And, uh, uh, so I, I don't know. I just love that aspect of it. I, I love that, you know, that I think King has such a great insight into humanity and what makes, makes us tick both positive and negatively. And, uh, you know, he, he brings it to full force in this book. And it touches very, very intimately to two of the most powerful sides of human nature. One is the negative side, which is there's always someone who annoys you. And there's always somebody, like you said, Mother Theresa probably was annoyed by specific people. And and at, and on the other side, there's always something you want or something you don't realize you need. Yeah. And and that side of it is super depressing too, by the way. I It's one of the, one of the things that I like the most about it is that he doesn't, it's not like, maybe with the exception of Buster, but even then I would argue that it goes to the nostalgia aspect as well. It's not like he promises people you're going to get money and power and glory. Hmm. He allows them to recapture a time of their life where things were better. And yeah. for everybody, pretty much, again, with like a couple of exceptions, I guess Polly is different, and, but she's a different type of character in there as well. But but he he strikes at like, remember how your life used to be great and now you have all those regrets and all those things that could have been but are not. And I've always found that idea of people feeling like they haven't lived up to their full potential or people feeling like their glory days are behind them or people missing something from their past so intensely is really scary, is really very disturbing to me. And, and when you see this, I think it's Ace, the one with the jacket, um, there's like one who can get like a letterman jacket and reminds him of what a cool guy he was in school. And now he's right. just a bum and he gets thrown out of bars every, every night. And, and, and what he, when he puts on the jacket, he's the man and he's, he reconnects with what he could have been when he was a kid. And I actually find that story as the saddest of the whole book. I don't know what yeah, that says it, about me, but I find it's it. Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite only as tragedy. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think the last time we, talked about this we were mostly talking about the items in Hmm. Leland's shop kind of preying on people's kinks but since recording that it's occurred to me that it's really more about preying on their addictions and their weaknesses Hmm. one of those two things I think nostalgia and regret are a big thing too I think when you again when you look at the jacket when you look at Nettie which is very bizarre in the movie because what she remembers when she touches that little figure is the horrible moment where her uh, her lead husband smashed it on the ground and she got beaten up. So you're like, why do you buy that girl? Cause that's like the worst. <laughs> time but it reconnects her with something that was 
that you have to understand was before her husband messed up her life. And, and it's that kind of like what could have been when the world was a more beautiful place. And I don't know. I, I feel like Buster is kind of that too, when he's playing with the, with the, the little uh, racetrack. It's also that kind of like, I could have been that guy who was really smart and I used to have fun at the racetrack. I don't know. But it's preying on, on regrets in human nature. And, and when I try to think of what I would ask for, I don't know what I would get now because I'm fairly satisfied, I guess, with where I'm at. Um, but I think that there is a world, you know, my dog is the most precious thing in my life. And I can imagine a world, hopefully many years from now, where she's not there anymore. And if there was an object that reconnected me with her presence, that would be something I would probably play a trick for. Totally. You know, in, in fact, I almost asked you about your dog earlier. Someone pointed out to me recently that um, there was a painted cover of a magazine recently with you on it. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. What was the name of the magazine? I'm sorry. I'm blanking magazine. on it. It's the, the current issue of uh, Delirium magazine. Yeah, and your dog is in the the painting, right? She is, yes. <laughs> That's so yeah. fucking rad. So dude. The, the, the painting is like a very babed up version of me, inspired by a picture of Ingrid Pitt, I think, and I'm surrounded by um, creatures from things that I've put on screen. And then because she was in a couple of my movies, my dog is by my side, and she's on set with me all the time. You know, like she's like my my filmmaking buddy, and so it made sense in my head. And- it made sense. Yeah. And and is the dog's name Anubis? Anubis, yeah. Anubis, okay. Yeah, I, I read that on, on Wikipedia and I was like, that is a fucking great dog name. <laughs> How did I not think of this? Yeah, she's pretty awesome. She's next to me right now. So if you hear funny noises, it's not me. It's my dog. No, I'm I'm a big dog person. Love dogs. Love dogs. So I'm I'm always there's always a mutual respect when I uh encounter someone who's like in love with their dog, like, you know. Like I'm in love with mine. Dog Stephen King unite. has a dog. He loves his dog. <laughs> he's he's scared well, shitless he, of that dog. Killing <laughs> uh, killing dogs on screen though. Or yeah, he, he kills a fuck ton of dogs in his in his books. The one yeah, let's messed up. Let's explore that for a second because <laughs> I think the I, dog I, dies I, in this one. The one yes. in the book we're talking about. Oh yeah, he dies yeah. Worse on the screen than he dies on the and the way. In the movie, they make it worse, but it's actually kind of funnier. Like, it doesn't strike me as badly as it does in the book. Right. Where in the book, the, the dog just gets like, I, I can't remember, like, throat slashed or something. Something like. Yeah, I think she cuts its throat. Simple. Well, in this one, the dog is skinned alive and hung from the ceiling. And there's this terrible skinned puppet. <laughs> you get him right. twice. And it's all almost goofy enough that it's it's less impactful. And I wonder if that's on purpose. That's a good question. I, I really don't know. I I know that, but I, but I do think it's an interesting point of conversation because this is one of my my wife's big hangups about Stephen King stuff. When we got married, she was not a dog person by any stretch of the imagination. And over over the years, she's become very much a dog person. We have three dogs now. You know, they're they are our kids. We're we're not gonna have kids so you know we're we're those kind of people um today the pope uh said that uh, that you're the worst kind of people yeah that- well the pope can kiss my ass all right he's not <laughs> he doesn't have any kids either frankly <laughs> but my explanation to her whenever this comes up like every other time we watch a stephen king something or other movie or tv show she's like you know he's always got to kill the fucking dog like the dog's dead again and i'm 
I object to seeing animal cruelty on film. Like I don't, I don't want to see it. Uh, I didn't want, I didn't see John wick for the longest time because mm-hmm. I was, same, uh, same. you know, I was, I didn't want to see them kill that fucking puppy. Mm-hmm. Eventually I was just like, I'm going to watch it, but I'm going to fast forward through the scene. And then the scene itself isn't that bad, you know, comparatively speaking to some, some things I've seen. What's the worst you've seen? Oh, I have a very clear one, but I'm wondering what yours is. Uh, there's a movie called Cub. Oh. I was thinking of that too. At fan, I, I was like, yeah. it's something I've seen at Fantastic Fest because yeah. there was that year that, at Fantastic Fest where like it's, it's real rough because they he it's about this like he, this kid like psychotic kid puts a dog in like a he's like a mean dog. He, he, my memory is that he looks like uh, the Budweiser dog. He's that kind of dog, and um, and he, like Spuds McKenzie, yeah. Uh, and he puts him in a sack and then like, they just beat the sack, you know, and you just, obviously there's no real animal in there, but like they do a good job of getting the, the whimpers and the whines and the cries. Right. And it's just so brutal to watch. Have you seen butterfly effect? Yes. Yeah. But I don't remember a dog death in that. You don't remember that. It's the same thing. They put the dog in the bag and it's a cute, fluffy little dog. And then I can't remember if they beat him up, but they definitely set him on fire. And fuck the fuck. That, yeah. You go back to that event like three or four fucking times. Like I can't. I, For I real? In twice. the butterfly yeah. effect? I yeah. don't remember yeah. that at all. Yeah. Oh, I, I remember. saw that. Like, I saw that. Like, not watching it again. I fucking. I don't even remember the last time I. I only saw it once, and it was many, many years ago. Maybe that's why I haven't revisited <laughs> some subconscious sort of thing. Um, like but it, Jeff Russell too. Like it's the most adorable little thing. No, the explanation I always offer my wife is that it's that's kind of shorthand in the horror writing world where you need a tragic or violent thing to happen, but you can't kill off a human character. You know, that's sort of my rationale for it, that that dogs often serve as like red shirts in the horror genre. It's not a it's not a great explanation, but that's the closest thing I've. I've, I've come to in terms of understanding it. What is your take on that in general, Axel? I think it's the same. I think I, I agree. It's usually, and to me, it's a misunderstanding of the priorities of someone's life. It's, I, I read that a lot in scripts where it's supposed to be the first bad step in the series of things that will hmm. culminate in you potentially getting killed. But to me, if you kill my dog, there's no, there's very little that would be above that. Hmm. There's like, from that point, you can burn my house. I don't care. <laughs> you know, you've done right. the worst or as close to the worst as you can get. I'd rather you didn't torture my mom, but, but you know, that's just, it's pretty high up already. And, and in movies, I always feel like it's kind of, maybe people don't have the same relationship with their dogs. I don't know. Maybe people have kids or I don't, I don't know, but it feels like it's very often just like, well, that happened. And then we keep going and then we don't. You know, you'd rarely see a character like for weeks being bummed out because her dog was burned in a bag. Hmm. Yeah, no shit. There is a societal thing to address because there are people that just don't view animals as, you know, as I don't know, worthy, you know, or as worthy of of, uh, being mourned if they're killed or whatever. I remember very vividly um, my mom when she got she was going through a divorce with my stepdad. Uh, we moved out and we moved like for a, a a year, we lived in a trailer park in the middle of nowhere. I mean, not middle of nowhere, still Austin, but it was like outskirts Austin kind of by dripping Springs. 
and uh, there was a lot of strays in the area, and there was like one in particular who was a very mean uh, female pit bull, but she was also um, she had like a huge tumor uh, on her, right? And my mom, you know, and it raised us to be very um, protective of animals and care for animals. So, uh, you know, she ended up taking her to the vet and the vet was like, yep, this is, you know, she's, this dog's not long for the world. You know, there she's in pain. She, that's one of the reasons why she's aggressive and mean. Um, and she's, you know, she's dying and there's nothing they can really do about it. And, you know, the cost to put her down was hundreds of dollars and, and all this stuff. And I remember what I vividly remember from that time is the next door neighbor was kind of this good old boy, uh, who we were telling, asked what was up with the dog when, you know, after the vet and, uh, the, he, my mom was just like, oh yeah, well, we're, you know, we, we had to put her down and she's, you know, it costs like 350 bucks. We'll figure, have to figure out a way to come up with the money. It was, it was really expensive at a time when we were, you know, living, scraping pennies together, you know? And I remember the thing that I remember the most is his reaction wasn't like, oh, you know, that sucks, but it's the right thing was he goes, it's $350, a bullet costs 25 cents. Holy shit. Yeah. And that's just what they thought. Like it wouldn't have been Holy a thing in the world to him. hell. To just, uh, you know, to just go in and find a rifle or something, you know, in his trailer and, and you know, plug the dog and dig a quick hole. I think of, I'm, maybe this is going to get me in trouble. I don't know, but it's how <laughs> I feel. I think of animals as more pure than human beings. Whether right. or not that's always true, on the whole, I just think of them as innocent and 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 pure. I would, yeah. I would absolutely, if I, if I were forced to sit down and watch like, you know, video footage of actual war combat, like people being killed in, in battle or someone shooting a dog. I'm absolutely, I would rather watch the, the war footage. I can't really, it's not like a one-to-one where you can say, well, it's better to kill people than dogs. Like it's, that's not true at all, but it hits me in a different way. Maybe that's a desensitization to the violence I've seen in movies over the years. I don't know fundamentally wrong to hurt an animal because that's not unless they're defending themselves and they have a good reason to do something it's right. not in their nature and why is it in ours and it doesn't seem to make sense yeah but i mean to your point and i think you're right that most people view animals as, as innocence right um and i think that that's kind of why it's it, they're sacrificial lambs you know for pardon the uh, the expression but they're sacrificial lambs in, in storytelling because it is like beyond the pale. Uh, Leland Gaunt could have, you know, taken a gun out and shot Buster, you know, in the head in this this story. And you go, well, that sucks. But Buster's a piece of shit. He had it coming, right? But <laughs> but if you know, right. w- w- but when Wilma goes and kills <laughs> Nettie's dog, uh, you know, it's it's m- way more aggressive than them actually fighting and her trying to kill Nettie or killing Nettie. There's a line that's crossed and a moral line. I, I think that that's the, at the very uh, basis of what we're talking about, where there's there's a moral, uh, a moral evilness to killing an animal, especially a, a pet, mm-hmm. you know, and and mm-hmm. it's just use a shorthand, you know, and and we've mentioned that before. It's it's and so that's why it's tricky. It's like handling, you know, sexual assault on film. You know, it's instantly triggering and gets an instant effect, but because it's so easy to get that effect, you know, some people misuse that, and uh, I don't know necessarily if king misuses the 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 animal death they, I, but you know but but it is dangerous territory it's a little bit overused i think oh Personal yeah 
and I and and when I get scripts that have that, I I usually fight that. <laughs> you know, if I'm interested in the rest of the story, that'll be one of my notes. Will be I I'm not I don't like that. And the moment that I watch a movie, a horror movie, and a dog is introduced in it, and maybe that's is exactly what the filmmaker wants. But I'll be I'll be scared to watch the rest of it. <laughs> right, right. You're like bracing for it. it. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's it's nothing, and sometimes it's easy. The, do- the dog dies at the beginning of The Conjuring. I don't think we even remember that because it's off screen and the dog lives outside. Mm. And there's weird things that we project onto animals. We're like, okay, that one was okay. <laughs> but right. if you have like the floofy little Jack Russell, I-, I-, I don't want to see harm come to them. And and it's interesting that you're talking about the fact that it's because they're innocent and they're- they have trust and they only hurt to defend themselves. Because it made me think of when you see Nettie and Wilma kill each other. Right. I feel worse for Nettie than I do for Wilma because I feel like one's a predator and the other isn't. And yeah. even, though, even though Nettie has killed her husband. <laughs> right. Yeah, Wilma's definitely the aggressor there. So it's it's always harder to put your empathy with somebody who's looking for trouble versus somebody who doesn't want trouble and trouble's finding them. Yeah. But it's interesting, I- though, because it, it's even though that's true, but she has killed before and she's the one who shows up at Wilma's house. That's true. That is true. She's got blood on her hands too. You know, it's uh, she's engaged in this, uh, uh, you know, in this kind of uh, stirring the pot that Leland Gaunt's doing. Yeah. Axel, how do you feel about Leland Gaunt and the overall pantheon of Stephen King villains? Like, how does he rank for you? I really like Leland Gaunt. Um, and I <laughs> can't remember what I, what my observations were when I was reading the book, but rewatching the movie I felt like it's a delightful portrayal by Mecklen Sido. He's just, he seems mm. like he's having a blast. It's not the most subtle character. And no. playing it with the greatest subtlety. And there's one-liners in there that you wonder why on earth they've left them in there. Because it's just being clever for the sake of being clever. There's that moment where he almost turns to camera. And he's like, do you think it's getting too hot in here? Like, <laughs> turn up the heat. <laughs> like yeah. a little bit heavy but it's so fun and he's such a fantastic presence and, and and there's something about the seduction of evil that's we've seen a lot but is always kind of fun when you when you play that with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek is it, is always amusing to see that the, the one thing he doesn't have in the movie that he has in the book is that he never really directly pushes people to violence although i can't remember does he give a weapon to one of them in the movie i can't remember but he does in the book he like he does in the book yeah and he tells them to go shoot people and so he's a little bit more direct in his here he's kind of more like well you guys give you the means now do your thing and i I like that i find that fun in king's body of work you know randall flag is sort of like an interdimensional character that you know, has, has clearly lived for eons. Right. And in that, uh, there's a short story he wrote. I mean, it may be a novella. I'm not sure called the man in the black hat, which, uh, is quite clearly intended to be Satan. I think that that's the implication on Leland Gaunt. Like, like you said earlier, Vespi, that he is the devil. Yeah. Um, but are we all on the same page with that? Like, is that what he's supposed to be here is the manifestation of, just evil incarnate? Well, yeah, I think so. 
Yeah, I mean, I think he's very specifically a very specific type of devil, you know, character. The the tempter devil, not the monster devil. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, he like very, the man in the black hat, which is yeah. more of a like straight up monster. Yeah, I mean, like there's um, yeah, there's like an old movie, uh, like old old movie called The Devil and Daniel Webster, and that's like kind of the old version of Satan. You know, was it wasn't like some big giant red demon with a pitchfork and, and fangs. It's it's uh, you know, it's just somebody who's delights in tempting you know tempting the good and virtuous out of being good and virtuous, and uh, it's it's like an older literary version of uh, of Satan. But I think that's absolutely supposed to be. The implication, and and to that point, I I'd love that he is a one and done character here. Like he works so much better. I don't think he could pull off a Randall flag. I don't think that this character showing up and tempting, you know, we us seeing more stories of of uh, him opening different shops and and destroying these little tiny you know quintessential American towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't need to see that, and that's heavily implied that that's what's happening. You know, at the end of the book. Um, that, you know, he, he pieces out kind of fails and says, all right, well, I'll do better on the next one. You know, right. that's just kind of, kind of what he does. And, and I think he, there is an, uh, something at the end of the book where like a new, a new store and a new town is, is, a, you know, opening. Um, and, yeah, and uh, but I, really funny scene in the movie where he shows there's like newspaper clippings that he kept. And then he mentions things that he's done. And it's basically, you're like, he was there with Hitler and he was there with like in Vietnam and right. in Rock. the <laughs> forest like, gump of evil. Yeah. <laughs> but he was in really, really big places, killing tons of people. And then castle rock. Then Kessel Rock. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a little over, over the top, <laughs> but, but I do, point. but I do love that. He's just this, you know, that he's just out there and that King hasn't felt the need to bring him back or rope him in and tie him into another story or tie him into the dark tower or any of this stuff. I, I just kind of like that. It's this more classical thing because he's just a little too goofy to, to work that way. And, and Randall flag can be goofy as well, but he's also way more sinister and menacing than uh, I, I think just be than Gaunt is. And I think it's just because he's more hands-on. He's just a little bit more threatening than somebody who who's just there to tempt people into doing bad things. Gaunt has something that I can't think of off the top of my head. I can't think of another Stephen King villain has. It's that he's gleeful. He's right? enjoying himself. He's doing it for the hell of it. Literally. That's not the shtick for the for um, flag at all. I think flag takes pleasure in it, but it's always part of some overall plan where yeah, like Leland a grand is, design for sure. Yeah. With Leland, it's more, he's that, you know, Joker style agent of chaos. That's just yeah, here to not, fuck everything. He's up. not collecting souls. He's not like, there's none of that bullshit. He's just doing it because he's finding it yeah. amusing. And you can yeah, see the, it on his face. Like he enjoys every minute of it. And, right. and I, I'm trying to think of another Stephen King villain who's, that kind of gleeful about his work, but I can't, I can't, no one pops to mind. Hmm. Yeah, in, in the book, it's a little bit more explicit that he's collecting souls. Uh, you know, in the movie, I think it was a mm. smart change for them because he has that like marble bag or whatever at, at the end of the book where they, it's like got glowing souls or whatnot in him yeah, and he's stripped of them and really wants them back. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, you're right. I, I, I think that, that there, there is, just a love of playing the game with Leland Gaunt. And that kind of weirdly enough to me makes is the scariest thing about him that he doesn't give a shit if his plans work or not, like all the time and effort because he is, he's eternal, right? He's just going to go on and do it again. And the next one will go better. You know, it's like, that's, 
Yeah, there's just something kind of fucked up about just how passe he is. He's not scared of somebody fucking up his plan or, you know, finding the right spell to kill him or whatever, because that just doesn't exist. He's just so comfortable in in watching his work play out. And if it does, great. And if it doesn't, well, there's always next time. There's something about that that reminds me of, it goes back to that idea that the book is about human nature. Right. The fact that he's just so not, there's no high stakes about this. Human nature is absurd. Our likes and dislikes are absurd. Nothing seems very motivated. The human existence is absurd. So to him, the fact that he's having fun with it always almost seems to highlight that to me. Like some people died. Well, some people died. Who fucking cares? There's like 5 billion others. There's a little bit of that. And how do you feel about Saito's, uh, Von Saito's portrayal of him? I think he's having the time of his life. Right. right. You know, was that the, the age of the character that you pictured while reading the novel? You know, was he? Well, that's a hard one because I can't remember which one. I think I read the book when the probably the movie was out yet. And I hadn't seen, I read the book first for sure. But I think I already had that head in mind because I knew he was cast. So, hmm. so it's hard to tell, but but you're I'm guessing you're referring to the fact that he's supposed to be seductive to to Polly, and that he's hmm. got the you would almost think that he's like a handsome man, and and he's supposed to be attractive, I guess. And then he has those repulsive nails and the teeth, and but he's supposed right. to be charming, and he has charm, but he has like old gentleman charm, like old world kind of charm. He doesn't have the the seduction kind of the the, the flashes of him in the movie where he's he's with Polly towards the end like and she imagines when she puts the the necklace around her uh, her neck and she imagines herself having sex with hmm. him it's a little bit like what that came out of nowhere I think I may have pictured him a little younger now that I'm saying this out loud but that's about it like I did picture him as sort of a hoity-toity type and I remember when I read this book I was very young and this was before the advent of the internet and reading in like, I don't know, fucking Entertainment Weekly or something that Needful Things is going to be turned into a movie and Max von Sydow is going to play Leland Gaunt. And I knew who Leland Gaunt was, but I had no fucking idea who Max von Sydow was. And asking my mom, like, who is Max von Sydow? And she was just like, what? Why is my like 11 year old asking me like fucking who <laughs> Max von Sydow is? And, um, you know, she couldn't just go to a computer and show me a picture of him. She was just describing him as this, you know, a old, much older actor, whatnot. I I agree with you that he's having the time of his life in the role, though. He's um, hmm. he's really, uh, I think, relishing in the right. in the evil of it all, and you know, the sort of puppet master angle of it. And the funny thing is that if your mom had shown you a picture of him in '73 from The Exorcist, he looked the same that he does in '93 in Needful Things. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think my Classic mom Dick even Smith knew that him. he was in The Exorcist, like because <laughs> I, I don't remember that coming up. I She's would a have huge known. Seventh Seal fan. I didn't see The Exorcist <laughs> until I was older. I don't hmm. think I didn't see The Exorcist until I was old enough to not really be scared of it. But also, I'm not. I don't ever find exorcism movies scary. I'm not a, a religious person by any stretch. And so virtually every exorcism movie kind of fails to scare me, no matter how well made it is, because I'm just not buying the premise of this to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I know there are way more fantastical 
um, things that I've been scared of in movies before, but somehow tying it to tying it to the religion of it all and making it literal has never really done it for me. And so I'm Mm -hmm. one of those people that I think the exorcist is, you know, a fucking masterpiece. And, uh, you know, uh, undeniably this, it looms very large in, uh, the horror genre, but Mm -hmm. I can't honestly say I've ever been frightened by it. It's, it's a movie that gets under my skin. Like, and, and I think it's just more in the execution, the sound design, you know, not that I believe that that I could get possessed. So I, maybe it, I, I just don't need to be as uh, invested <laughs> into a, sure. the scenario as, as you need to. But I also saw it at a younger age, so that could also have played a part in it. But I think it's uh, it's great. And to your point about uh, Max von Sydow being so great in the movie or having the time of his life, like that can be said about almost everybody in the film. Like it is so. Like I think the movie itself you know, would be like a solid six and a half or seven for me, uh, where it's, it's kind of good, but not like exceptional in my mind, but it is immaculately cast. Like I love the casting of damn near everybody in that movie. I think Bonnie Bedelia might be just a little bit too vanilla in that role, mm-hmm. but it might just be how it was written. Cause she's a really good actress. So I don't know. Uh, it, but like she, I, I wouldn't even call her a weak link, but I'd say out of everybody that's in the movie, like I think Ed Harris is Pangborn is, is inspired. Sidow's great. Um, uh, JT Walsh is a perfect buster and, you know, it's just, it's, it's a movie filled with like the right faces, you know, at least mm-hmm. in my opinion. The way it's cast is also in perfect sync with the tone of the movie and, and hmm. tone of it is one of the things I like the most because I right. feel like. And, and I think that Scott, we disagree probably on that one, but I feel like it does have that very strong um, black comedy tone to it. Like it takes itself fairly seriously, but then when you hear the music that he chooses and the fact that like the, the, I can't remember what his name is, but the guy who's has to be Buster clearly is not supposed to be very serious. And, like there's so many different, there's little edit moments, the way that the clergymen are, des- are described and the way that they look at like the erotic art or the, the, the fancy cut and, and it's it's supposed to be funny you can tell that it's supposed to be a dig at human nature again and that, right. you know, how petty some people are and, and i don't know i think that yeah the, the whole I thing do, feels, I, to me it feels like it's a cast and a director who are having fun with it i i do i, I do agree that the i think the movie is more clear on its intentions or king's intentions than mm-hmm perhaps the novel was, but the, the ideal version of this adaptation for me is something that like really leans into the inherent absurdity of all of this Hmm. and also undercuts the, uh, the Americana of it all. You know, my ideal version of this is, is more heightened and more um, probably more over the top than what they did. But, but you are right that I, I, I do think the, the film nods to that in a more mm. explicit way than, than the book does. So what else do we want to talk about in terms of mm. needful things? Uh, one thing I, I, yeah, that I would mention is Pangborn. Yes. Like, like I feel like his character, again, I love seeing characters come back from like Cujo or the dark Hall right. and then being in this, I love that the world is connected. There's lots of little references in the book. I, I seem to remember there's like a, a reference to Christine. There's like references to the body. It, it, it's a very interconnected one, but it doesn't, 
it works in the Pangborn works in the book, but in the movie, to me, it doesn't work at all. Mm. It has no arc whatsoever, and it makes the ending very disappointing because everything hangs on this guy who is righteous from the start, is identified as the guy who will not be tempted, and then he's not tempted, he's not corrupted, and at the end, he's the good guy. And it's like right. a surprise in that at the end of the day. Like you need something where someone that's tempted is corrupted and then does something selfless at the end to to redeem the village, where the village right. come together and somehow like go, hey, I fucked up. This is, you know, I actually like my neighbors. Oops. But, but here it comes from the one guy who was never tempted in the first place. And, and he's very, I love it, Harris. I think he's fantastic in it, but he gets very little fun stuff to do. I, I agree. And they also give him that scene with, um, uh, with Leland Gaunt, which he never has in the book. He doesn't meet him, I think, until the end, if I'm, my memory's right on that, where he's never face yeah, to face because Gaunt is always... Time always kind of avoiding him because he knows he can't he can't tempt him but in the movie they're like well we can't have the main villain of the movie and the main hero just never meet until the last five minutes <laughs> uh so they like give him the scene where he tries to tempt him which which i think is the nod to that but i think they weirdly give that arc to um uh the bonnie bedelia character that's um uh polly and uh because it's her she's the one that's that's tempted and gives in and gives in due to pain, you know, and, th- and that's fascinating to anybody that's had to live with chronic pain. You know, that I think that's a very fascinating thing where her needful thing isn't something material. It's, it's being able to, you know, have free motion again, you know, be able to use her hands. I think it's fascinating that she's the one that is given that moment where she's the kind of turn of the tide. It isn't until, you know, Pangborn gives his big speech or whatnot, but it isn't until she gives up her needful thing that other people start like doing it as well. So she's kind of given what you were looking for, but you're right. It's, it's, that's not what, you know, that doesn't really help this, the narrative really, because, you know, you're, you're being told this whole time. It's this, you know, white knight hero. That's, uh, that's, you know, just perfect. And, and, you know, th- that's going to save the day. And, and, and the fact that he doesn't have any sort of real temptation or real struggle, you know, other than solving the mystery of what's going on in this town. It's, uh, you know, I, I think you're right on. Much. The mystery is not that much because he seems to know from pretty early on that it's going to be Dean on Gaunt. Yeah. And then the kid literally tells him he's the monster. And then, and yeah. then like, oh, he's the monster. All he's waiting for is for the village to be assembled in bad position so he can go, you guys, it's actually, he's pulling the strings. And that's, that's that. Like he kind of, yeah has very little to do it's 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 really weird <laughs> it's like in screenwriting terms it's, it's it's very bizarre that someone just missed out on that completely he has a little bit more to do in the book i really like that he's he's he is a righteous man he is hard to tempt but at the end of the day he's tempted because he needs to know what happened to his dead family and yeah. that's very yeah. powerful and that's like i don't think anybody would be able to resist that so it that's very compelling and it's a shame that we're I don't have you guys seen the longer version? I have not, and I'm dying to see it. Yeah, I haven't, yeah, seen I haven't either. And I wonder if there's something that hints at least at his past in, in the longer version. Because there's gotta be some stuff like you constantly in the movie you see Cora with her Elvis sunglasses just kind of hanging around looking right. <laughs> looking drunk all the time. And and she must have had a part in the longer version, right? She's just just seems so random to just have this woman in those glasses at the bar and then outside and then 
you know, and then suddenly she's Brian's mom. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that given all the, the machinations of this plot, like how it's, it's set up punchline, set up punchline, set up punchline. Like you need almost like a, a like, you know, the, that meme of like Charlie from it's always sunny with the fucking, you know, board behind him, like the conspiracy board, you know, you almost, right. you need that, like that runway to sort of lay out all the, all the tricks that are being played and the results of them and how it affects these people and so on and so forth. So, so it ultimately orchestrates itself into this, you know, symphony of, of, of chaos. Um, I do think that making this as a feature film was probably very difficult to, to pack all that in there and, and still have it, have it translate. I, I think they did a decent job with that, but uh, you know, going back to my ideal version of this, I think it's like a four to maybe six at most uh, episode limited series to really, really balance it all out. I agree. Or it's one of those, like the same format as something like servant where it's 25 minute episodes. So yes. you get those little bites of something and it adds up little by little. Mm. I think it'd be really cool. I think it'd be really, and it'd be really interesting to see how you can mix social media into that. Like there's a lot about the world today that you can, you can introduce that they didn't have at the time, which may shoot you in the foot to a degree, but, but social media has so much of that kind of stoking egos and, yeah, I don't know. I can see that amplifying. Yeah, well. yeah, totally, totally, and and stoking the the fires of conflict, mm-hmm. you know, between these characters and envy, and and you got that thing, and then you can show it. And although one of the things that's interesting, like one of the interesting differences between the book and the adaptation, is the nature of the objects that he gives. Mm. In the movie, they're real, and in the book, it's very clear that they're just like a piece of cardboard, or like right. you know, an old damaged jacket that no one can recognize for what it is. It's always an illusion. And I find that very powerful. I like that. I think the property is due to be mined again. I will not be surprised if, uh, I keep saying, I want to write this fucking thing. There's, there's frankly no way that's going to happen before someone else out there. Who's, uh, that's their whole job. Uh, I think comes along and, and, and does something, similar to what I'm imagining, but I, I really do hope they revisit this one and expand it. And just thinking very selfishly, I, I, I hope they go along the lines that I'm, that I'm thinking of mm. uh, with yeah, it. I, I, I just I love this story. I would throw my hat in the, in the ring any day for that. It's, it's one yeah. of those King properties that I think kind of need it. If nothing else, because the movie is so um, has kind of disappeared off the face of the earth, but but it, mm-hmm. it has. There's a lot of stuff that's happened in the world since. There's a lot of you know we've we've gone through Trump. We've divided the nation even more than it was before. Oh, yeah. and there's so much about that without making it necessarily political, but uh, about the way that the world is polarized. That's really interesting, and, and it kind of goes to the core of what the book's about. And right. yeah, I think right. there's really cool stuff in there. Well, yeah, it, it's that's it's, it's just as timely. Movie. Yeah. yeah. With a guaranteed explosive ending. <laughs> Churches will blow up. Axel, this is usually the point in the show where we ask our guests uh, to tease what they're what they're working on next. Can you can you tell us about your the thing whatever you're cooking up right now or too early um, or It's a bit too early. I've got um I have a feature that's kind of 
simmering at the surface that I'm hoping will shoot this year would be very, very cool. Um, I just finished a spec as well, so that's exciting. I, I'm the slowest writer in the world, so it took me a very long time to finish it. So I'm excited <laughs> to just have something I can take out. Um, I, I've got those two episodes of Midnight Club coming out whenever that show comes out, which I'm also really excited about. They're really, really cool. I, 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 again, I cannot believe that Mike Flanagan keeps like offering me those amazing scripts. Otherwise, I don't know if I, I'm not sure what to mention to people. The Manor is on Prime. Um, episode 8 of Haunting of Bly Manor is still one of, if not the favorite thing I've done. So check those out, I guess. Well, we uh, we are very excited to see Midnight Club and excited to see whatever you do next. You are clearly on the rise. Uh, we're, we're really excited for your ex- uh, success, not excess. We're excited <laughs> for your excess, Axel. Um, <laughs> we're, we're very happy for you. And, um, you know, thank you so much for being here today to, to talk to us and go a little more in depth on, on Needful Things than we did last time. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. I, I love discussing this stuff. So thank you for indulging me in my um, obsessions of Stephen. Of King course, and- anytime. Thank you so much. Many thanks to Axel for joining us. Finally, we finally got her on the show. We've been talking with her for months and months and months, and we finally were able to work it out. And I'm glad that she she made it over and we got to dive back into the world of needful things a little bit. Indeed. She was a great guest. And uh, I'm glad that we got a Needful Things episode out of our system where I wasn't uh, plastered throughout <laughs> the thing. Uh, that's always a bonus. So now we have an official one. And I was also glad we had the uh, the dog killing conversation. I feel right. like that one's kind of overdue on this show. So um, that was a fun one. Yeah, Indeed. I mean, there's a little bit of lack of the uh, the gauge getting hit by a truck uh, sound effect, which mm-hmm. I do miss. Uh, but, you know, when it's not Mallory uh, O'Mara here to... <laughs> to join in on the fun, it's harder to uh, work that sound in without just totally confusing our guests. Yeah, we don't want to do that. We don't want yeah. to do that. Got to save them boys for a special occasion. Speaking of special occasions, yeah. we have one coming up next Wednesday. We are returning to Maximum Overdrive, and we have a very good reason for doing that. The guest that we have lined up for this episode is a returning guest to the show, has never seen Maximum Overdrive, may well be watching it even as we record this. And uh, we are just very excited to hear this person's take on this particular movie. That's the extent of the um, clues that I'm going to give yeah. you. I will so, say second appearance. And yeah, don't give him more. Very popular. Though. Very popular. Guess. Yes. 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 You'll you'll be excited upon the reveal for this one if oh, you haven't yeah. already figured it out. <laughs> um, but uh, this is a, a perfect marriage of subject matter and guest and. Um, we haven't recorded the episode yet, I should say, but mm. uh, we are very excited to do so. Yes, it is on dock for tomorrow. Uh, so barring any emergencies, that will be what we get next week. Uh, and I, for one, can't wait to do it. Uh, in terms of our Patreon, though, this Friday, we're doing something a little different, but uh, I think pretty interesting. I don't know if you will remember, we had an episode a while back, a uh, Patreon episode that we uh, used to explore Scott's experience flying to Maine for a Dark Tower uh, junket visit, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you know, and he kind of re- 
recounts that. So this week I have my own kind of version of that where I went to the set of it. Then it was just it. Now it's it chapter one. And I interviewed everybody from the cast and the director and the producers and even maybe sneakily recorded some audio while they were filming. Uh, and I figured it, <laughs> it might be time to break out some of those old audio clips and uh, kind of have a little bit of a discussion about about that experience. So I'm going to be talking about visiting the set of it and uh, bringing in some really interesting audio with all the young actors. Uh, and, and I might even throw in some audio from from the uh, uh, a phone interview that that I ended up doing with Bill Skarsgård uh, shortly before release. Oh, that'll be cool. So it's, I got a whole worth, bunch of stuff. Yeah. It's worth pointing out that you're going to be flying solo on this one. I tested positive for COVID <laughs> last Friday. <laughs> yeah. uh, classic Wampler. And um, I've been in bed ever since. <laughs> yeah. To have that bonus episode ready in time for Friday, drastic measures had to be taken. And luckily, Vespi had the perfect solution for this. So uh, I'm excited to hear it. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to breaking out some of these these chunks. I have no idea what format this will take, uh, but I think I'll do a little bit of talking about my overall experiences and then throw in some really cool audio. I'm very specifically excited to share the all the interviews with the kids uh, because this is like before they became like super famous for being the it kids. And they were just like these excited kid actors that were like in the middle of bonding, you know, and, and making this movie. Uh, it was a really fun time and, and I'm excited to kind of pull these out of the vault. Nobody's ever heard these before, except for me. I transcribed them and that was it. So you're going to revisit this audio and they're going to be saying all kinds of cancel worthy shit. Oh yeah. Oh, Finn that, Wolfhard. That Finn Wolfhard. Yeah. Yeah. No Ghostbusters afterlife part two for you, buddy. Mm-mm. Stranger things four is your last hurrah. Apparently just an unrepentant racist. I mean, who would have <laughs> known, but only against uh, Taiwanese people. It was really odd. It's, it's totally cool to everybody specific. else. It's I know. Very specific. For there, we we got to get to the bottom of that. Uh, for for the <laughs> we'll lawyers out there, uh, he he, th- that is not true. That is a joke. So don't sue us. Yes, that was a, a fever dream I had. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a COVID fever dream week. from from Scott. Yeah. Blame it on the COVID, please. <laughs> so next week we have Maximum Overdrive in the main feed, and this Friday we have a peek behind the scenes of the first it. Courtesy of some uh, cool old interviews that I have. Uh, and if you want to sign up for our Patreon, feel free to run over to patreon.com slash the Kingcast and do it. We got lots of good stuff. We're continuing the uh, Shelbyville RPG adventure that we we began. People uh, really like that. Yeah. I think. Yeah, so uh, and we are very excited to record another one of those. The, the four of us just kind of want to be playing it all the time now. <laughs> we don't want to like overwhelm people with those. I was thinking like once a month for this first season and then then we see what happens. I think that's a good plan. But uh, if you guys want more, then it's not going to be hard for us to <laughs> uh, to do that. Because right now we're super duper involved into this. And Scott's drawn maps. He's made maps. I got And I got the package, whatever you guys sent me uh, last mm. night. I haven't opened it per Mallory's instructions. Yes. I told her last night that I'd received it and she was very adamant that I should not peek. So yeah. no, that, that um, is something to be opened while we are recording. So the man of my word, it's sitting here unopened on my desk. So uh, I'm looking forward to finding out what it is. So yeah, head over to Patreon. Lots of great stuff. And uh, if you don't want to do that, then fine. We understand, but we'll see you in the main feed next week for maximum overdrive. It's a pretty mean thing to do to a guy with COVID. I'll just That's say true. that you should That's go over true. there and check it out. You know, should have sympathy for Pop Pop. <laughs> Adios, folks. 
The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. <laughs> <laughs>